This episode is sponsored by State Farm. You a small business owner looking for insurance that fits your needs and budget? Well, look no further than State Farm. State Farm agents are not just insurance providers. They're also small business owners who live and work right here in your community. They understand the unique challenges of running and protecting a small business. When it comes to small business insurance, State Farm knows what it takes. Create a plan that fits your needs and your budget. State Farm agents are ready to help you choose personalized policies that truly understand your business. Ensure your small business with a fellow small business owner. Talk to a State Farm agent today and get started on personalized small business insurance that fits your needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Hey, I'm Rob Berger. When I'm not rolling in the dough, that's right, I'm stacking Benjamins. Live from Joe's mom's basement, it's the Stacking Benjamin Show. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug, and welcome to a safe house for people in 48 different countries who love to talk money. This is where all the secrets are laid bare, where a small, clandestine group of stackers share ideas like pay yourself first. Don't tell anyone that little nugget. In fact, I wasn't even supposed to tell you that. Well, stackers, do we have a great treat for you today because if you've ever tried to convince anyone of anything, you'll love today's guest, former CIA operative Jason Hansen. Plus, in our headline segment, we might slip you a little something about Wells Fargo, and we, uh, we might eye a little gem about CFOs retiring at a breakneck pace. Also, we'll throw out the Haven Lifeline to a person, we'll decode a letter to the mailbag, and still leave time for my incredible trivia. And now, two guys who are clearly what Joe's mom means when she talks about counterintelligence. It's Joe and O-J-J-J-J-G. Well, he doesn't make me laugh much, but that, that was pretty good. That one was pretty good, yeah. Yes, Doug sticks the landing about once every two months, I'd mm-hmm. say. Welcome to the show, everybody. And Wednesday, I'm Joe Salci. I average Joe Money on Twitter. And across the card table, coffee in hand, it is the other guy, or as we call him, O-G. What is shaken? It is such a great day. End to be of summer alive. already, doesn't it feel like it? I just watched you polish off two Panera breakfast sandwiches, like bam, I'm, bam. I'm, I'm a grown boy. You, you, old or not up, just like Jimmy Buffett says. <laughs> Got to keep that protective coating for your rock hard abs in place. Well, here's the thing: my after school activity really ramps up here in the next couple of weeks, right? And then I'm in 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 season, let's say, as air quotes, for a, for a several months thereafter. But to get in shape, you must start out of shape. If you're not out of shape to begin with, then there's no real yeah. necessity to work out. Yeah, why? So why? I feel like you have bigger create the motivation. Yeah. You know, you just you have bigger wins. It's like it's like debt. If you're gonna pay your debt off, you should have lots of debt to pay off. So right before you get serious about paying it off, charge that up. Just crush those credit cards. Just yeah. Go get everything you want so you can really make progress. You can go, well, I had 100000 in debt. Now I'm down to ninety eight. And at the same time, you get to teach Macy's who's boss. That's right. Yeah. No. Uh, please do not do any of that. 
We are just joking. You know what we're not joking about, though? We're getting close to colleges going back into session. Mm-hmm. If you're somebody that needs to take out student loan debt to get yourself through college like I did, check out Student Loan Hero, their magnified money sister site, by the way, stackybenjamins.com forward slash student loan hero. If you're a parent or a student comparing rates before you lock in that loan for college, head to studentloanhero.com and you'll see exactly all the different programs that are available. Compare and contrast. We've had, we've had a couple of people in the basement Facebook group lately, OG, as you've seen, talking about some of these horrible student loans they got into, not a regular unsubsidized yeah. student government loan, program, yeah. government program, one of these shaky loans through some bank. And it didn't work out the way mm-hmm. that they thought it would. So head to a place like Student Loan Hero first. And thanks to them for helping out with the show. We got a great show today. We're talking CIA. Oh, that's James Bond. Yeah, close enough. MI6, CIA, Jason Hansen coming down to the basement. If you've ever had to persuade anybody to work with you, get something done. Like you, you must have used these ninja tactics forever to work with me. I love the stare of death. As in, I was ninja tacticking you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. I thought it was the other way around, but okay. Good show today. Let's move on. <laughs> Time to get this party started. Crickets. Crickets. Hello, darlings. And now it's time for your favorite part of the show, our Stacking Benjamins headlines. Our first headline today comes to us from Barron's, and uh, I I thought you'd like this, OG. Uh, This is written by Ross Snell. Good news coming to us from Wells Fargo. (laughs) They've opened less than a quarter million checking accounts for Wells. Too soon for that joke? Yeah. Wells Fargo's advisor attrition slows. Thank God. Uh, imagine, imagine when you get to the point where everybody in the C-suite is glad-handing themselves because the Barron's headline is, We suck less! <laughs> Sorry. There's a lot of good people at Wells Fargo. Th- there are. Uh, the number of Wells Fargo financial advisors and brokers declined again in the second quarter, but the pace of attrition slowed. Wells Fargo Advisors, the bank's retail brokerage, had 13,799 advisors at the end of the second quarter, according to a supplemental earnings release. That was 28 fewer than the 13,828 at the end of the first quarter and a 0.2% sequential decrease. Year over year, headcount fell 3%. Those are smaller percentage declines than in the previous two quarters when headcount dropped 1% and 4% on a year-over-year basis. The Wirehouse has now lost 1,287 advisors since the third quarter of 2016 when the parent bank's fake account scandal exploded. Other problems followed, damaging Wells Fargo's reputation and drawing regulatory scrutiny. At, At what point, if you're an advisor, do you go, it's okay to be associated with a name again? Yeah. I was thinking about this from the other perspective. I was thinking this was the straw that allowed a lot of people to take that leap, whether it was the leap to independence where, you know, they're going to set up their own firm and really go fee only and clear themselves of all of that, you know, commission and the, the the weird dealings and stuff like that that they had been a part of. Because frankly, you know, if you look at the industry as a whole, that's where a lot of people start and that's where a lot of people 
stay because it's comfortable and it's real easy to do. And I think the big, the big uh, concern if you're at a big firm like a Wells Fargo or Morgan or Merrill or you know one of these other big broker dealer firms, you know maybe the grass is greener, so to speak. Maybe there's some better opportunity for clients on the other side of the fence, but it's such a huge risk and. If you don't have that like extra ounce of entrepreneurship where you're like, yeah, I could do this all over again. You know, I've, I've been in my business for 20 years. I have all these clients that I love and some of them love me, hopefully most of them. But if this all went to hell, I could start over, <laughs> you know, yeah. and, and you have to kind of take that leap of faith and say, well, I think it's going to be better to be able to serve other people better being independent and have a better lifestyle for myself. And this might have been the the straw that helped a lot of those thousand people that you mentioned kind of flip. That's a hard thing for an advisor that people don't know. If you start building your practice one way, and even if you know, you're like, you know what, there might be a better way to do this. A company like a Wells Fargo, a Merrill, a Morgan Stanley, they have tons of systems and you really are an employee. I mean, that comes with a lot of, a lot of baggage, a lot of uh, handcuffs customer support, teams of people managing a lot of the things behind the scenes so that you just get to meet with clients. Mm-hmm. Once you go out on your own, you're you're running an entire business. Yeah. And you all of a sudden, instead of having to do one thing, which is just take care of your client, you've got this whole P&L that you didn't have before. We're going through a technology change right now that I started in, I think, October last year. When I signed the contract with this new provider, they said, "Okay, well, let's do the uh, onboarding. You know, here's the what are what are the kind of process management diagrams? I can't remember the name of them, but you know what I'm talking about, where it's like got all the different things that have to get done by the different people, and it's like this big long chart. Anyway, they said, "Okay, well, here's the the end date. We're hoping to be done by the end of June." And I said, well, uh, "Hold on, what? <laughs> like, when do I start paying?" They're like, "Yesterday, actually, you signed the form. That's when we start billing you." And I said, "So maybe this is done by the end of." June, the end of May, if I'm lucky, April, if I, you know, six, seven, eight months. And we're not done yet. We're close. But you forget how easy it is to have a whole different team of people whose sole job it was is to vet technology and then implement it field force wide and then say, okay, here's the, here's the new thing that we're using as a, as a firm and it works. And you just log in. Yeah. And instead, when you're head cook and bottle washer, you, have to do all that on your own. And then you have to find the problems and you have to test it and all that sort of stuff. The other thing that these big firms do really well is they have processes in place to train new people. Yeah. They always have a pipeline of new people. In fact, uh, the next quote in this piece is, advisor headcount stabilizes. We had our best recruiting quarter since 2016 in terms of both the number of hires and the associated production, Kim Yurkovich, a spokesman for the unit, said in an email statement, advisor attrition has dropped, our pipelines are robust, and the recruiting activity levels of our local managers are very high. So they have a, a recruiting program. They have a way they teach people how to do the business. I just got a great email from somebody who said, hey, I ended up at one of these firms. Did you see this email? Yeah, I did. I ended up at one of these firms, and this is really not what I want to be doing. This is not. This and went I, from a really cool advisor job to... 
Wait a second, I have to call people on the telephone? I remember those days. I started in the in the early 90s. I thought I was going to be magically giving people budget advice and talking to them yeah. about all these cool tips about the grocery store. I read sport. the Wall Street Journal today. Yes, all this great stuff. They're immediately teaching me how to sell loaded mutual funds and permanent life insurance. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, not, not, not at all pretty. And a lot of coping going on with that. But I will say this. Did you get your phone in the tub? And then you would plug your phone into whatever jack was available. That's right. Do you remember those days? Yes. yes. And, and Sometimes it was the hallway. You're like, oh, I, this one. I like this one. This I, this was a good one. Oh, no, no. Ours was a big room uh-huh. with a bunch of desks. Yeah. And and we would always play the movie Wall Street uh, <laughs> with, with no sound on or Rocky. And, uh, <laughs> and with no sound on, like I've seen Rocky 67 times. And and you'd begin dialing the phone, people yeah. you don't know, and systems. But seriously, when you're a brand new advisor, talking to people you don't know, a lot of people you don't know, frankly, is the only way to win. You, you have to talk to a lot of people. It's the law of large numbers. Somebody's got to hire somebody that doesn't know crap, right? <laughs> somebody has to. Hopefully, it's nobody listening to the show, yeah. by the way. Well, but, that's why we tell people that call and leave questions about the industry or or people that write in, it's not about being a really good financial planner. I have an right. associate advisor who just took a CFP exam a week ago, and so we'll find out if he did well, hopefully. He's feeling very confident, I can tell you. But um, he's, he's realizing about nine months into it that this is not a, you know, always sit down and get to be with clients face-to-face all the time. It's dealing with technology issues. It's, there's, like I mentioned before, it's payroll and problems that Schwab did for us, you know, like, Hey, we did this. We're not going to tell you about it until you figure out that there's a problem, you know, and just kind of recognizing that. But in the early parts of your career, it's a marketing business. It's a sales business and it has to be. And so I think a lot of people get frustrated when they find out that uh, the first three or four years is not as glamorous as yeah. the uh, the last 16. We we just talked to the subset of people who are interested in the industry and maybe being a part of the industry and kind of what goes on behind the scenes. But what is the message here, though, to consumers? To me, frankly, it is, you know, I was with a fairly big firm that's known for having a lot of CFPs. I frankly think looking inside the walls of that big firm even though the firm wants outsiders to think that everybody behind those walls is the same, I'll tell you, there are people on my hallway that I would trust implicitly, and there were other people I wouldn't. I think it still comes down to the individual relationship, you and that advisor. 100%. Because once you recognize, I think, from the advisor perspective, that the custodian or the firm that you're with, their job is to support you and your clients... And you can convey that to the client. So you also have to recognize as a, as a consumer, as a client of these organizations, that all of that stuff that is being provided to you with the, the logo of whatever company on there, whether it's Wells or Morgan Merrill, whomever, that's part of the service package that your advisor has chosen, sometimes by default, but sometimes overtly as well. That includes simple things like making sure the statements show up on time or that you have website access or that your bank account is linked with your brokerage account, that sort of stuff. So your relationship, none of that, I'm saying, has to do with financial planning. None of that has to do with goal attainment. That is just a service associated with helping your advisor help you make better decisions. So from the advisor slash consumer side, as I've been through this, if your advisor says, hey, 
I'm leaving Wells or I'm leaving Morgan or whatever, and I'm going to start my own firm or I'm going to go to a different firm. Yeah, there's something in it for them, right? I mean, there really is. It's a big process. So there's got to be something in it for them. Might be a little bit more money or better work hours or something. But there's also a big sales job that those people do for here's how it's going to help your clients. And maybe we don't do as good a job as advisors communicating how how a change like that would be helpful to clients. But recognize your relationship is with the person, not the custodian or not with the brand name that's on the statement, so to speak. Squarely. Our second piece comes to us from the Wall Street Journal. I found this one interesting. No matter what you do, no matter what the job is, this is written by Ezekiel Manaya and Titania Shumsky. CFO retirements climb as good times roll on. Did you see this headline? No. Does the CFOs fire? <laughs> They're like, I finally made it. I have $68 million in stock options. I can finally call it quits. I fired today. I made it to $126 million. I'm, <laughs> I'm only $8 million away from the number Susie Orman says I need to get to. Exactly. But I think I might be okay. I used the 14% rule. <laughs> Uh, Bill Rogers had climbed the corporate mountain, ascending to the financial chief role at Centerpoint Energy. He just guided the Houston-based utility through the $6 billion purchase of natural gas and electricity supplier Vectran Corp, and he was approaching an important milestone of 60th birthday. So in March, Mr. Rogers retired. Quote, the timing was right, he said. It's an increasingly familiar refrain. CFOs are retiring at the fastest pace in at least a decade. A generational changing of the guard that experts put down to factors, including the increasing complexity of the role and the booming stock market. Two things I wanted to get in, into there, OG. The first thing is the booming stock market. Part of me thinks there's a lot of CFOs leaving right now because the market's been on a tear for so long. Frankly, that makes it a little easier for them to do their job, right? Because the tide's going with them. Mm -hmm. But if the tide starts going out, you know, the first, the first person the CEO looks at when there's negative earnings is the CFO because they're supposed to be the, you know, the wizards at managing the books and making everything look great to the outside yeah. world. So uh, that are the general sales team, basically. Yeah. 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 Look at the sales team. Look at the CFO. Well, I think also it's the fact that a lot of their compensation, especially the higher up you go, is incentive compensation. It's equity-based compensation. And like you said, since the market's been going up, how do you exercise $32 million in stock options or whatever the numbers are? Because some of these, it's, it's really breathtaking when you look at, at how much money some of these folks get paid in these big firms. And it's not really that easy to find, but it is kind of amazing to... I, I can't I have a diff different word for it. It's just amazing. <laughs> <laughs> well, no. And I got to tell you what also I think might be causing this is, as you know, Wall Street looks at year over year. We, we you know, whenever you read these pieces, they always say yeah. year over year returns. Well, here's, here's the thing. Last year, we had this massive corporate tax cut and everybody who follows this closely, who nerds out on it, they all know every company this quarter is going to look like crap when you compare them to a year ago. Because last year, companies just raked in money because of the massive tax cut they got. On paper, yeah. Yeah. But because we compare things year to year, we're going to have the next two months is going to be all corporate earnings coming in of they weren't as good as they were before. They weren't as good. And, and by the way, you can say that once, twice, three times, four times. But when you do it for the entire S&P 500, my personal feeling is by the end of the quarter, I think we're going to get a little beaten up by it. Because I think the talking heads are going to subconsciously start going, 
man, that's a lot of companies that didn't do as well as last year, forgetting it's kind of rigged. Yeah. I think it's 100% the market's up. You can leave with a good legacy. You know, I was a CFO while everything went great for 10 years, you know, and you got a crap load of money. I don't know. But you kind of also look at that and, and you think about this idea of timing, of leaving with timing. I like the idea of not fighting timing. And clearly, this is a great time. Like, I read this. I'm like, oh, yeah, I get it. I've been meaning to talk to you a little bit about something. <laughs> yeah. yeah, timing. Time to, time to uh, you want me to hit pause? <laughs> but what does this mean for the average person? Because I started thinking, you know, if I'm, frankly, you see some of these people. And when I was a financial advisor, I remember, you know, working in Detroit, I remember in a couple of cases, people were surprised when they got laid off. And I remember having these conversations of, really? (laughs) Really? We saw round after round after round of layoff. You're now the low person on the totem pole. You kind of got to see it coming to the point that I started asking my clients, I'm like, how are things going at work? Like around, you know, 2007, 2008, we were like, how are are things going at work? Have you guys had had layoffs? Where do you stand? What do you think the chance is that you're going to get laid off? And that's when we'd start beefing up the cash reserve, proactively retiring some of the debt versus looking long-term. A lot of the time, we'd like to look long-term and short-term at the same time. But in that case, specifically, we kind of forgot about the long-term for a while and started making sure all the ducks were in a row in case hell hit the the fan. Yeah. I think you got to look at that. When you look at retirement planning, a lot of times it's on the horizon. You know, It's the 15-year goal. It's the 20-year goal. It's the 25-year goal, but eventually it becomes the five-year goal. You know, even if you're trying to delay it, you know, you're you're 50 and thinking, well, maybe I can get out of here by the time I'm 55. And then you get to 55 and go, maybe I can get out of here by the time I'm 60. That's still a short time horizon. You know, eventually, you know, you might like your work, you might like what you're doing, and and that's all well and good. But as that time continues to get closer and closer to today, you gotta start recognizing that. The benefit of buying yourself an extra year, you know, in this person's case, you know, maybe he's thinking, well, I could work another two more years or I'm good. You know, like I'm good enough. Forget the money amount, you know, forget about the fact that he has probably millions and tens of millions of dollars. Many people are like that where you say, okay, you're good. Like buy some time back, you know, and whether that's saying, well, I'm going to work a couple more years so that I can aggressively pay down the house. That's what I'm trying to do before I get there or something like that. Or I'm just going to be done now. You know, I'm, it's good enough. I think, uh, I like this idea that you're talking about because I'm thinking about older people that I worked with and how there are people that loved working, but increasingly as you get older, there is some ageism. We've talked about this before on the show in the workplace as as you get older and older and your bosses are younger and younger, they're looking at the old man or woman going, you, you know, are they just phoning it in? Are they here just for another paycheck? Or are they really on board? Mm-hmm. And whether that's true or not, your young, aggressive boss might be thinking that in a lot of cases. Yeah. So when, when I've seen people succeed, it's when they take whatever they do, whether it's nursing or fry cook or engineer, and they learn how to be some type of a consultant in that area. And that looks different depending on what you do. But people I've seen that are successful at 
elongating their career to keep doing that thing. It's never in that same capacity of working for the man the way they used to. They're generally have to become an entrepreneur. So I think for anybody, whether you're 25, 35, 45, 55, even if you enjoy working for the man now, starting to get those entrepreneurial skills and learning how to own your own business, I, th- I think that's huge. I like the consulting angle. I should do that a little bit more. Been meaning to talk to you about some stuff. <laughs> Want me to hit pause? <laughs> Start consulting? It's, it's great. I'm still on the show every day, but now I get paid more. Exactly. It's incredible. It's amazing. And you sell that to me. Actually, you, you know, so I was uh, with Scott Rickens and the fire movement movie Playing With Fire that's going around the country. We went to local TV station, Channel 2, mm-hmm. and the guy who was putting the mics on us. By the way, the guy putting the mics on you, if you do that, God bless you. Uh, but I'm going to talk some smack about you guys. I think some of them are frustrated anchors because they always want to tell you everything about what they think about the segment you're about to do is I've done TV for a number of years. And the dude who puts the microphone on you, I'd say seven times out of 10 always has an opinion about whatever you're about to talk about on the segment. (laughs) and wants to make sure that you know it's... Throw you off your game, like, right before you go. And we're back. And you just got your face kicked in by, like, the sound guy. I know. Well, Earl said that... Yeah. (laughs) that, That we... But this guy got downsized by the TV station and was able to come back and get more money now as a contractor, right? So now he's an independent contractor, able to work for other people, doesn't have his benefits anymore, but he's old enough that he's getting Medicare. You've seen this before. Mm-hmm. So he's got his government benefits. He's got more money from the from the station that he used to have. Everybody came out ahead in that deal. Yeah. I mean, there's pros and cons to it. You know, obviously sure. you got to... Yeah. Now you got to pay your own taxes and right. all that sort of stuff. But, you know, as you get closer and closer to whatever that time is, whatever that financial independence time looks like, whether you're a CFO or you're a sound guy at a TV station, I think if you want to keep doing it, that's perfectly fine. But let's figure out a way to do all of the things that you want to do. Long headlines today, guys, but I think some great points. I think our first takeaway is is exactly that. Elongating your career probably isn't going to be working for the same company you're working for now. So learning those entrepreneurial skills, super important. And the earlier you can do that, the better. And I think our second takeaway is uh, still working at Wells Fargo. (laughs) No, that's horrible. That is not the takeaway. The takeaway is I think every career in financial planning comes with pluses and minuses. And it's still with your financial advisor. It's that individual relationship that's more important than that sign on the door. I am fascinated by those topics. I could talk about those two all day. I like the part where it's not like I have a chance of doing this because I should have started by now. But if I was a CFO that had $65 million, I might retire too. <laughs> I might have already been retired. I'm not greedy. It's like that. Uh, I only need $65 million. <laughs> I could quit at 12. <laughs> like let somebody else work for a little while. Uh, as a former CIA officer, how often have we gotten to say that on the show? Never. Former CIA officer and founder of Spy Escape and Evasion, Jason Hansen, 
has used a ton of tactics and stories, uh, partly to woo and convince Shark Tank's Damon John to fund some money for his highly successful spy school. He is a gentleman who knows the art of persuasion and whether you're trying to convince your spouse to become more interested in the family's financial situation or you're trying to run a successful business, you're trying to sell anything, you're trying to persuade anyone. A lot of these spy skills come in very handy. I'm incredibly, talk about fascinated by a topic, fascinated by this topic, OG, Jason Hansen coming down to the basement. And coming down the stairs to the basement, it's our new friend, Jason Hansen. How are you, man? I'm doing fantastic. Is it difficult for spies to find people when they're just hiding out at their mom's basement? These inquiring minds want to know. If only it was that easy, man, then we wouldn't have to spend all that time training at the farm and other places. (laughs) I, I do know one Jason Hansen. His son actually played soccer on my team when I was coaching my son. And he happened to be the Detroit Lions, by the way, for people that aren't, aren't, aren't college uh, football fans and, and, and pro sports fans. He was the kicker for the Detroit Lions. Just to be clear, you're not that guy. I probably couldn't kick a football to save my life. So, yes, I'm not that guy. <laughs> but let's talk about who you are. How, how does somebody become a person in the CIA? I imagine that you're sitting there at a restaurant one day. And a guy in a black coat sits across from you. And next thing you know, you're put into the back of a car and then you're with the CIA. Is that what happened? Close. But the real way it happens is, you know, the Hollywood myth, of course, is, you know, you're recruited by some cloak and dagger guys you just mentioned. But probably 99 percent of us applied to the CIA, went through the very long, you know, 12 month process of a polygraph, medical meeting with a psychologist only 1% of people around there are really recruited, meaning they're the geniuses who speak 17 languages and graduated from Harvard and are the, the 1% intellectually. Uh, so I was one of the lucky ones. I was one of the 99% who applied and made it through the rigorous process. Are you allowed to talk about the type of missions that you worked on? Uh, not really, because everything I do, meaning every book I write, every training I do, So there's something called the Publications Review Board at the agency. I have to send my manuscript to them. They review it. We go back and forth. They redact things. I say, well, what if I say this? And they say yes or no. So it's a pretty lengthy process to get something approved. Well, to talk about all of these uh, spy qualities that make people better at selling and, you know, there might be people listening, Jason, that say, I'm not in, I'm not in sales. We're all in sales to some degree, aren't we? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I've used the persuasion skills that are in my book. I've used them, obviously, in the business world. But when I was single, I used them in the dating world because you're obviously trying to get a girl to like you and date you and eventually marry you. So, yeah, we're we're salesmen and women in all areas of our life. Yeah. So uh, you have a great story at the start of the book. Obviously, in 15 minutes, we don't have time to talk about the entire book. But I thought this makes a great point to kick this off. You tell this story about a gentleman named Tyler and his experience as a trainee with the CIA. Can you kind of walk me through this story? Because this was fascinating, all the things this poor guy went through in one day. Well, I mean, just like the military or any other government agency, the CIA wants to weed out the weak. So they want to make it difficult. They want to make sure you can survive anything. So in the story in the book, you know, he gets a knock on the door in the middle of the night 
And it's an address very far away, several hours away in Washington, D.C., where he's got to be at a certain time frame. He doesn't have a car he can use. He doesn't have any cell phones. So he's got to go hitch a ride. And persuasion starts with him convincing a few college kids to drive him all the way to Washington, D.C., where he can find out the next chapter of kind of his quote unquote training mission. So that goes back to of sometimes you may have to persuade somebody to give you money, lend you a ride, do whatever. So these skills definitely apply to all of us. And from there, by the way, he gets to Washington, D.C., and then I think I think he uh, there's a woman who looks at him just briefly. She is a newspaper. She throws it in the garbage. How does he how does he recognize that this is a moment? I mean, in, in sales or in life, we all have these little moments. He very quickly recognizes that this is probably his contact and he's got to he's got to nail this moment. Yeah, I mean, it's absolutely difficult. You have to be incredibly observant because if you're in the D.C. metro and you've got people getting on and off the metro subway, et cetera, you've got to see who stands out, who gives you that brief eye contact, who lets you know that, hey, this is the person you're supposed to be uh, liaisoning with. So I think most of us or many of us walk around with our phones, staring at them, texting, having no observational awareness of what's going on around us. And that's crucial to life and obviously in the spy world. And since Tyler did that, he was able to figure out his next step in his mission. And his next step then was to go to a, uh, I, I believe it was a restaurant and he goes to this restaurant and there's a guy who clearly is following him into the restaurant. He goes over toward the guy. And, and by the way, you know, I had so many questions about that because as a spy, you don't know if this is a good guy or a bad guy. He starts to approach the guy, but the guy gets all warm and friendly, shakes his hand. He's really passing him a key. But he talks to this guy during that time and they make some small talk. And I thought about this in the world of sales too, Jason, that being able to go to an event, you said you're an introvert. I'm an introvert. Being able to go into an event, identify people you don't know and get in the conversation is also a huge part of success. Oh, it's, it's everything. I mean, in, in the spy world, it's everything because you've got to be a chameleon. That's what we say. Even though I am an introvert, you have to be comfortable going to a dinner where billionaires are at and socializing with them. Same thing going to, let's just say, the backwoods of you know people who aren't as educated or whatever. And you've got to be comfortable talking to anyone and everyone. So in Tyler's case, because he is that chameleon, and again, anybody can train to do that, he had no problem talking to this guy. Of course, you know, you're always on edge because, like you said, you don't know if that's a friendly or a guy who's about to stick a knife in your back. But you're watching body language. You're watching facial expressions. And that's the same thing you want to watch to sales. He, he gets from this gentleman a key to a hotel room. He goes to the hotel room. And as he's approaching the hotel, you write that he feels very tired for the first time because he's been up all night. You bring up several times in the book this idea of being physically fit. It's funny. In business, we don't talk about that much. Do you think we need to be talking about physical fitness more when it comes to the business world? Yeah, absolutely. I know a very successful business owner, and he likes to say, you are your own million-dollar racehorse, meaning if you were a rich person, you owned a million-dollar racehorse, you would give it the best care, the best food, the best trainer. But in our own lives – you know, we're eating like crap. We're staying up too late. We're not getting enough sleep. So we're treating our own million dollar racehorse pretty poorly. Personally, 
I work out six days a week. I'm not one of these guys who's a workout junkie and I love it, but it gives me the energy to be successful with all the business tasks I have to take on. So I work out from 6.30 to 7.30 every single day, six days a week. I think it's crucial that anybody does it who wants to be successful in life. It's funny you say that because the way that you phrase that, you don't like working out. You like all the other stuff that it gives you. That's 100% right. I mean, I'll give you an example. I wake up at 4.30 every morning because I run multiple businesses and have so many things to do. So I don't enjoy waking up 4.30. I don't you know, think, hey, this is great. I do it because I like the results of the success. I'm able to shut down at 5 a, or 5 p.m. every day to be with my kids. I'm able to run multiple businesses and be productive and do what I enjoy. So, yes, I love the results of waking up early. I love the results of what exercising allows me to accomplish. I want to go back in the story when Tyler was convincing these college kids to drive him for two hours. Because you make a point in that part of the story about something else I wanted to touch on, Jason, which is this idea of emotional intelligence and being able to be collaborative with other people. Talk about that for a second, about collaborating with other people and very quickly being resourceful enough. I mean, most people in life say, well, I can't make it because I don't have a car, right? Tyler doesn't have the ability to say that. If he's going to pass this training, he's got to figure out a way there, which means he has to work with these college kids. Talk about resourcefulness. Yeah, I think first I want to start with empathy. Intelligence operatives are incredibly empathetic, and most people don't think they would be. But you really have to care about people. You really have to see what is important to them and what they want. And as you're observing that, as you're showing empathy, you can figure out, okay, what do I have to do to accomplish my task? And that's when resourcefulness comes in. So if I see a young kid in a car, what does he want? What appeals to them? What music do they like? What is exciting to them? That way I can relate and then I can figure out what is it going to take for them to give me a ride. As a world, we're often very, very selfish. It's a me, me, me world. So I'm always putting myself in the other person's shoes. What do they really care about? What can I truly help them with? And then once I figure that out, it's a lot easier for me to get what I need. I always thought that, I don't know if you know Zeke Ziegler, But I always thought that Zig Ziegler, kind of very motivational, but also a lot of sugar. But there's a piece of Zig Ziegler that resonates with what you're saying, which I think is a lot deeper, which is if you spend a lot of time helping people get what they want, you will get what you want. Yeah, that's 100 percent right. In the intelligence world, we have a saying give to get and give to get means if I give people enough of what they want, eventually I'm going to be able to get what I want and maybe bribing somebody to work for the U.S. by giving them money. It may giving them their favorite scotch or whiskey or whatever it is, but you give enough people what they truly want. And then absolutely, you're going to get what you want in return. How, how do you train people then, Jason, to get good at these skills? You talk about emotional intelligence, about systems, about your body. You talked about you get up at the same time every day. Where does that training begin? Well, in my world, it begins in you know some top secret facility, meaning they're throwing you in a quote unquote training mission and they put you in the local mall and say, you have an hour to get somebody's social security number or you have an hour to get the last four digits of their social or their pin number kind of thing. They throw you kind of baptism by fire. And once you talk to enough people, you know it works. I mean, I can tell you a really silly example. I know that if I'm trying to get the last four of your social A woman who is over 40 is the best chance I get, meaning if I try and target another guy, I'm not going to do it. But if I find a woman who's 40 plus, I'm able to uh, build a better rapport and elicit that information. So by practice, you figure out who do you work best with, who who are you able to connect with, 
and you might be surprised at what you learn. That's you personally. That's not everybody. I mean, everybody. Correct. correct. Me personally. Yeah. Everybody's now not going to walk through the mall asking over 40 women what their social security number is. <laughs> when, when you are talking about this, you have a system that you talk about that you introduce in the book called SADR. Is that directly from spy training or is this something that you took from spy training and created? Well, no, it's directly from the intelligence world. Okay. So in the intelligence world, obviously, you want to have people from a foreign country give the United States secrets. So hypothetically, if I'm going over to Russia and I know there's a guy in Russia who has some information we need, I'm going to use the SADR cycle, which is spotting, assessing, developing, and recruiting. And in a quick nutshell, that means spot my target, who has what I need. In the business world, it's basically what clients can give me what I need, assessing boiling down those clients to truly have it because I've got to assess do they really have the information that I think they have. Developing is basically courtship, making them falling in love with me so they work with me. And recruiting is the point in the spy world where I say, hey, Boris, I really am not an American businessman. I work for the CIA. How'd you like to join us? Um, in the business world, that's, hey, would you like to sign the contract or close the deal? It's a very in-depth cycle that can take days, months, weeks, years. And of course I just boiled it down in 30 seconds. Well, yeah. And I like that because it's, it's playing the short game and the long game at the same time. I mean, you're looking for instant results, but at the same time, you're not closing the door, burning your bridge on, on things happening later. Absolutely. I'm a huge believer in working on the long game. So I could care less about quick profits in business or quick results because you make a lot more money. You're a lot more successful when you look long-term. That's what I wanted to ask you about that because you have a whole piece of, and I want to take just one little quick piece of each of the SADR chapters. You talk about getting in touch with your inner analyst and looking at what's your end game. And I, I feel like too often in business, we're so in the moment, we're not thinking about what's my ultimate objective. Like I see all this low hanging fruit in front of me and it ends up being a big distraction. I'm not thinking enough about my end game. How do I stay focused on that? You know, the simple thing is, is I'm, you know, when I look up at my desk in the morning, I have a piece of paper taped to it with my end game because life gets so crazy. So right. in the intelligence world, you'll get something called a requirement. And of course, I'm just making this up, but your requirement may be recruit a Russian scientist who has access to this exact formula. That's a very specific requirement, you know, you're going after. So same thing in the business world. If your requirement is I want to make a million dollars this year or I want to get 50 sales or whatever it may be for your own business or even your own personal life, tape it there. Look at it every single day. That way, as all this other junk comes up in life, you don't get distracted. When it comes to assessing then, let's transfer over to that. You talk about some ways to get people to open up to you, which I, which I really like. How does a spy get people to open up and give them stuff that they normally wouldn't tell other people? Well, we use what is called the hourglass conversation. And so in the spy world, you can't just come out and say, hey, Boris, do you have access to this super duper <laughs> formula we need? You know, if only we could do it that way. But instead, you use the hourglass conversation where you start with a very broad topic. It may be the weather. It may be kids. It's something everybody's comfortable talking about and usually pretty boring. Then you start broad and you go narrow. Narrow is when you may ask them such as, hey, Boris, so what do you do for a living? Or tell me where you work. You're trying to figure out if they have access to what you need. But then you quickly go broad again where you're talking about the food or what they're doing next week. 
Because as human beings, we remember the beginning, we remember the end, but our minds are moving so fast, we're going to forget what's in the middle. And if I'm trying to penetrate Boris to find out what he does for a living, I want him to forget that I asked that question so it doesn't raise any red flags. So the hourglass conversation allows you to elicit information without coming off creepy or weird or too straightforward. I absolutely love that. You know, that's true, because if you would have continued down that narrow part for too long, people go, what's wrong with this guy? Like, what's what's up with him? You talk about something else, too, that, you know, I, I don't have as much time to read fiction as I used to, but Tony Hillerman novels, there's an approach you have in here I used to always call the Joe Leaphorn rule, which was, and I found this to be true, too, Jason, if you tell people something about you that's a little bit overly personal, they almost feel compelled to tell you something back that's a little more personal about them. I love how you talk about that rule also in the book. Yeah, it's a great way to elicit information. So it goes back to also the the spy rule of give to get. If I want to know your family situation, if I want to know your married or kids, I will first start talking about my kids or I'll open my wallets. And of course, a picture of my family was sitting in my wallet and I'll say, oh, yeah, here's my family. You know, what do you think? Because then you're going to tell me about your family or I'll say something, you know, like, oh, my gosh, you know, I'm so afraid of flying. I hate flying. And I'm really doing this because I want to know if you travel often and I'm trying to figure out if you leave the United States or yeah. whatever country we're really. So it's a it's a purposeful ask question. But I'm going to bring up my fears, my family, trying to get as much feedback as possible to learn about you. I can't believe how effective that's been in my professional life. That rule right there has been so incredibly useful. Looking at uh, developing, I like the fact that you talk about, and I'm not going to ask you to talk too much about this, but about developing alliances instead of contacts. I love the permanence of that. I think that's hugely important. But let's move on to recruiting. You talk about how to make an offer that people simply can't refuse. How do you do that? In the spy world, before you're going to finally recruit somebody, they're going to be so in love with you because you can't afford them to tell you no. Because if they tell you no, the next time you meet them, you may end up with a bag over your head. You may end up in a foreign prison. So you're not going to pitch somebody uh, in the spy world or business world or whatever until you're 100% sure they're going to say yes. But when you do that, because a lot of these people want money, you're going to sit there at the table. You're going to say, hey, Boris, you know, we're great friends. I love you. But, you know, I need to tell you something. You know, I really don't work for, you know, this American company. My employer is the U.S. government. And you've been so helpful that we'd love you to continue to work for us. And you take out of your pocket a big fat envelope full of cash. You put it on the table. You keep your hand on it. And you say, you know, this may not be for you, Boris, but I can slide you this money right now. But of course, only if you really want it. And so you're kind of teasing them. You're kind of doing a takeaway. And you're keeping your hand on that envelope full of cash. Of course, they're staring at it. They desperately want it. But you really want to make sure they're in. And you're not going to slide that money over until you are convinced, until they've told you, yes, 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 I, I want to work with you. I want to be a part of this very enthusiastically. And then you slide that money over. And the government always wants a receipt for their money. So you're going to have to have a receipt signed. But other than that, you're doing it very calculated to make it exciting for them. And you're not immediately throwing the money in their lap. You're making them earn it and want it. And then you can slide it over. So it sounds goofy, but it literally works. No, and I love that better. I mean, it's such a positive end to the the beginning of the relationship, too. I see a lot of business people that at the end of that initial discussion about whether we're going to work together or not, the last thing they say as I'm walking out the door is, well, call me if you have any concerns or problems. 
no, I don't want that to be the last thought. I want the last thought to be, I'm in, I'm in with both feet. Like, why are you, why are you killing this whole thing with, well, if you have concerns later, call me. No, 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 no. They will call you. I want them to feel good. It's a theatrical production. If you boil it down to it, I mean, you're a, you're an actor and you want them to leave on this high. You want them to be super excited. You want them to be enthusiastic. You want them to walk away in the spy world with this huge amount of cash in their hand. That way your mind or their mind is thinking of you on a high. They love you. They can't wait to continue this process. And that's what you want to do in your own world. Whoever you're closing for whatever reason, a lover, a business contact, you want them to walk away feeling, I am so glad I get to continue to work with John Doe or Emily Doe or whoever. Yeah, no, it's 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 a little bit of theater to get to a lot of truth later and some really good stuff for everybody. The book is called Agent of Influence. How do you spy skills to persuade anyone, sell anything and build a successful business? This has been a hot book, Jason. Congratulations. Where can we can get this everywhere, right? Yeah, anywhere. Amazon, Barnes and Noble, any place books are sold. Yeah, congratulations. But I do have one last question. One of my favorite views of you is of you uh, drinking water out of a McDonald's toilet. <laughs> tell everybody, tell everybody about that. So, so yeah, I gotta like compose myself. I'm laughing here. So I have a water filter, and people, it's like the world's best water filter. And people are like, no, no, no. I bet this water filter isn't any different. So I literally took this water filter, went into a McDonald's toilet. There was already urine in there because, of course, it's a McDonald's. Popped it in there and drank and videoed it. So it just proves that I stand behind everything I do. I absolutely, absolutely love that story. And uh, and I got to tell you, the whole time you've got your head down there, you got to be thinking, start with the end of mind. Keep the end of mind. Well, that too, but I was also hoping nobody walked in because it would look incredibly (laughs) awkward if somebody did. Hey there, stackers. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug. And while this Hanson dude talks a good game about spy stuff, you and I both know who the king of espionage is on this podcast. Watch me sneak this trivia right in here. In the James Bond movies, Bond has a friend who's in the CIA. Sadly, one of the gentlemen who played this role over the years, David Hedison, passed away this week. What was the CIA character's name? I'll be back with your answer in just a moment. Well, as you probably know, college isn't cheap and prices continue to go up every year. And if you're somebody that has decided that to get the return on investment in college that you need, that you have to take out student loans, your first stop should be Student Loan Hero. StudentLoanHero.com is the number one place online to get information on refinancing lower payments, forgiveness programs. But in this case, to just look at the different products that are out there, the different programs that are out there. When it comes to student loans, you don't want to find out later that you had the wrong strategy. This, after deciding which school to go to and what program you're going to invest your life in, how you're going to actually afford that is a huge piece of the pie. And I always get worried when I see people that don't think enough about this until it's too late and they're in an easy program that didn't end up being the program for them. How do you compare lenders? How do you take a look at reviews of lenders? How do you also make sure 
that you know all your questions are answered when it comes to student loans, like the difference between private loans and federal loans, what programs are out there for refinancing, how do repayment terms actually work when it comes to these different options, what's the interest rate, and much, much more. Head to studentloanhero.com as your first stop as you get ready to fund your college experience. Hey there, trivia fans. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug, and I'm back with an answer to today's spy-themed trivia question. Here it was one more time. In James Bond movies, Bond had a friend who worked for the CIA. What was that character's name? David Hedison and others played the CIA agent in films like Live and Let Die and License to Kill. And that character's name? Felix Leiter. Get it right? Of course you did. And just so you know, this trivia was shaken, not stirred. See ya! Big thanks to Jason Hansen for coming down to the basement. You know, one thing, OG, that he and I didn't talk about that I love from uh, his book is this idea that I'll read to you here. It, it says that there's always a way in. Spies are never daunted by not immediately having the right connections. They know that no matter how far away, powerful, famous, dangerous, or reclusive a person is, there's always a way in. It's often simply a matter of figuring out which one of your contacts can bridge the gap. There's always a way in. I'd, I'd love that. Kind of dovetails with your one of your favorite books, right? Never Eat Alone? Yeah. And a constant message that I hear you preaching, not necessarily on the show, sometimes on there also, but just when we're talking and with, uh, when I hear you conversing with other people, it's about the network. It's about the people that you know and the people that they know and how not manipulating that, but just ever expanding it so that you've always got opportunity, whether it's business opportunity for, for, you know, your business or line of work, but also for, Hey, I'll be in town. I need a buddy to go to dinner with or whatever. I think, uh, you do a much better job of this than anybody I know. So, well, thanks, man. I get frustrated as you know, by people though, that they say, I can't, they go, well, I can't do this. I can't. Well, you know, I, I, I come on, there's always a way in there. Mm-hmm. There truly is always a way in. And it's funny, I remember I I had this client who came here from Turkey, and he knew almost nobody in the United States. And I'm meeting with him, and he says, he's 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 been in America for two weeks. And he said, Joe, I want to buy a job. And I said, Okay. Like mm-hmm. then I then then I knew somebody, I knew somebody who helped people with resumes. And I'm like, well, we don't really buy jobs here. We, we, uh, we, we go get jobs. And by the way, he didn't, he didn't really have any funds to quote, buy a job anyway. So I send him to this resume person and he comes back and he says, Oh, uh, uh, Judy, she was wonderful. Judy was fantastic. But I think you misunderstand me. I want to buy a job. I really want to buy a job. And I'm like, I don't, I don't know. And we kept talking all of a sudden I realized he didn't want a job. He wanted to buy a business he had no money, no connections, brand new to the United States, wanted to buy a business. Within six weeks, he owned not one, but two UPS stores. He found the right people, got the right connections. And my cousin is sitting on the sofa watching TV all day, complaining about how 
He can't get a job. There's no opportunity. And I know my cousin well enough to know he hasn't even tried. Hasn't even tried. Mm-hmm. Just it, it, it was so inspiring to see that. Uh, big thanks to Jason Hansen. And I'm glad. Aren't you glad I clarified at the beginning of the interview that he also was an Alliance kicker? Not that Jason Hansen. <laughs> not, not the same one. I'm glad he got it. Like that, that, that he knew Jason Hansen. Hey, let's throw out Haven Lifeline and tackle some of life's most important questions. Our friends at Haven Life Insurance Agency, they put what you value first. Well, this morning happened to be two, as you noticed. Two. But to be fair, I did bring one for you. You enjoyed them very, very much. I bought my... In fact, I, I didn't even eat mine because I was going to be so nice as to have breakfast with you. Your life insurance underwriting just went down a couple notches. Because you inhaled those. I don't think that was the issue. That's not the singular issue. If you head to stackybenjamins.com forward slash Haven Life now, you'll get a free quote. Their application is simple. It doesn't even ask how many Panera sandwiches you had this morning. Uh, it's online. It you probably get, should. It probably should. <laughs> you, you, you should apply right now, quickly, before they catch on. And uh, you'll get an instant coverage decision. Price is affordable. And of course... Their policies are issued by Mass Mutual, who's over 160 years old. Let's throw out the lifeline here to our friend Anonymous. Hey guys, I'm a big fan. I have a question for you. So I am 34. I have about $300,000 in savings, uh, no debt, and uh, I'm pretty new to financial planning and fairly new to money uh been working very hard and been able to save up and so i wanted to ask your advice if you were my age 34 and had 300k what would you do with it thanks guys thank you for the question congratulations by the way on on working hard and for uh deciding it's time to get educated that's that's awesome i'll tell you what i do before i turn it over to the professional here i'd send it to your favorite podcasters (laughs) that's exactly what i do if you're an honorarium, it, yes, I think that would probably be appropriate. It's not tax deductible, though. So, and, well, that's that that's irrelevant. Do what's in your heart, man. <laughs> <laughs> what do you really do, OG? Gosh Almighty, is it a cop out to say? Well, it depends on what your goals are. I'll, well, uh, he, he didn't. He didn't actually ask that. He said, "What would you do if I was thirty-four? Knowing knowing what I know now." And I go back in time to 34 and I had 300 grand. Now, I'm assuming he may, when he says savings, I'm taking that very literally, like 300,000 savings, like sitting in a savings account. So I think the first thing I would do was I would uh, make sure that I had a cash reserve that never went below 50 grand. I like the idea. That's just a nice round number. Depending on how much money you make a year, 50 probably gets you the better part of six months worth of expenses, maybe even longer than that, maybe nine months or a year even. So I'd put that in a place that I never thought about again. And then the other 250 I would just put into an investment account and uh, take 6000 of that every year and make sure I transferred that into my Roth so that I could kind of move that around into some tax-free stuff for the rest of my life. And, uh, and then I would behold the power of compounding over the next three decades. We talked earlier about that training that I got from one of those big firms. They taught me something that I still believe today which is you look at this like you're building a house and to build it on a strong foundation. The first thing I would do is look at your cash reserve, which is exactly what OG said. He said 50,000. 
you might want to get even more granular and talk about, you know, we talked about your career. What's the chance it's going to go away, mm-hmm. right? But 50, certainly a nice cushion for any emergency that might come about. Then I would look at everything that could go wrong and build my risk management strategy. So what can really bite me? And the reason I like doing that second isn't because I'm conservative. It's because I like being aggressive with my investments. And if I do those two things first, I can be aggressive and not worry about it as much. Then I take a look at my short-term goals and long-term goals, look at what types of investments historically have been the most appropriate to reach those. Like as an example, if it's a four-year goal, leaving the money close to cash is a great idea because the stock market's like a 50-50 thing, real estate, who knows what's going to, you know, buying a house and selling a house during a four-year period, you're going to lose a ton of money, but your your realtor's going to high-five you. Yeah, right. Yeah, you might get a free lunch out of that uh, Barely. that you paid for. You know, real estate and stocks don't work, but over 20 years, those are fantastic places to go. Mm -hmm. So then choose them appropriately. So I like it. We called that the place I worked. We called that the four cornerstones approach. And I still like that OG because it's conservative, but it also allows you to be aggressive. Isn't that kind of what I said? It is, but I kind of laid it out more so he can see it. I see. Yeah. My way was way better. Build a house, got it. Much, much better. But not literal house. Not a literal house. Thanks for the question there. Now, what would I have really done at 34? Yes. Well, Might be different. I was doing something, and I've said this publicly before. I mean, I'd finally gotten my butt out of big-time financial trouble, and I also had built my cash reserve, paid down debt, but almost all of my assets went into building my business, Mm -hmm. which, frankly, in hindsight... I got really flipping lucky that I was able to sell that business for a nice amount of money because even though I diversified some, if I had it to do over again, obviously I wouldn't have made some of the financial mistakes I made that would have required some more education, but I also would have had a more diversified portfolio and not bet everything on that business as much. Well, it's kind of interesting talking about, you know, small business ownership, which, you know, this applies to a lot of people that listen to the show. It's, you have to think about it from like a, capital growth perspective. You know, if you believe in the long-term capital markets, you know that the S&P averages 10% a year. That's widely all over the place, right? There's minus 50s, there's plus 50s, small caps average 12.5% a year. So if you're a small business owner and you're trying to decide, do I take profit and put it in my 401k? because that's effectively what you're doing, or do I take profit and put it back into a marketing plan in my business, which we hear from a lot of business owners. They're like, I, I, this is my, my retirement plan. My business is my retirement plan. Well, you got to look at it from a capital growth perspective. If your business isn't producing well more than 12 or 15% a year of growth, you're better to buy the market. Because, you know, unless you own, you know, 10,000 McDonald's or something, you are a micro, 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 micro cap business. And if you go to the bank and try to get money for your micro cap business, and they're trying to decide, do I lend money to you or to General Electric? Your rates are going to be that much higher. So that's, you got to think about it from that perspective. And if your business isn't producing, you know, 15, 20% a year growth, then maybe the best place isn't in your business for that extra money. The thing I like about your business is that you're in control and In some cases, you see the only reason a business didn't fail 
was the tenacity yeah. of, of of the founder. I'll tell you. So that one, I can go, yeah, I'm I'm with OG, but I'll tell you where there is no but. My buddy has a business and is asking me for money. Oh yeah, well, versus putting it in something more stable. Whenever I hear that, I'm like, consider it a gift. Well, that or just recognize that if you're going to invest in your buddy's business and his projections are, and I think your money can grow at 10% a year for the next 20 years, just go, well, I already got that. And I don't have to take the risk of your micro cap business. I can own American Express and 499 other really big companies. But if it's at 25, like I think your money's going to double every two years, right? It's going to grow at 25 or 50% a year. It has to. It has to, but then also recognize, well, what's the other side of that curve? The other side of the curve is when you get great returns or you have the propensity of great returns, you also have the opportunity for immeasurable losses. That's why these angel investors, these these big firms that do these things, they'll invest in 40 of these companies. Yeah, they're putting $5 million in 40 things. One of them turns into Facebook. And it wipes out all the losses for the others by far. Yeah. Because there is no middle ground. It ain't going to do 10%. Nope. (laughs) It never, never, never will. Thanks for the question. By the way, if you've got a question for the show, head to stackingbenjamins.com forward slash voicemail or just at the top of the Stacking Benjamins website, you'll see questions for the show. Click that link and that will also lead you to the Haven Lifeline. That's going to do it for today, OG. A couple quick housekeeping things. First of all, thanks to everybody who's left us a review of this show. Mom loves putting those on the refrigerator to impress the bridge club when they come around. Thanks to everybody who's done that. And also, OG is uh, OG and his team are taking clients. So if you're somebody who's looking for good help in your corner, the way to get to them is stackingbenjamins.com forward slash OG. Very, very simple to see what it would take to get them working for you. All right. That's going to do it for today. Thanks so much. By the way, special shout out as well. Thanks so much to all of our stacker friends in the Detroit area who came to the screening last week. We had so much fun. Monday night, our Everybody's a VIP party at the basement. We actually finally had some people, actually, OG visited the basement, saw where we make the magic here. People think we're kidding about a rickety card table. They will tell you we're not. Uh, We are not. But anyway, thanks to everybody who came over for that. Thanks also to everybody who attended. That was so fun, wasn't it? The screening was a blast. It's a good film. You were particularly good on the panel afterwards as well. <laughs> I might have worn something other than a sweatshirt had I known I was going to be on stage. But but Amy Blacklock but from but Life Zemplified was right? awesome. Andy Hill from Marriage, Kids, and Money. And of course, Scott Rickens, who made the movie. Just, All of them were way better. That's why I, I was at the end. I, it, was, it was incredible. All right. That's going to do it for today. Doug, you got it from here, man. What should we have learned today? Ah, jeez, Joe, does it have to be now? I mean, I'm t- come on, I'm over here building a completely encoded, safe communication line out of some peach cans and some string and a chocolate bar and some ibuprofen tablets, but you want me to do this? Okay, fine. All right, hey, first, trying to convince someone to work with you, buy or sell something from you, stay alert. You'll need all of your senses to notice clues like body language that can make the job so much easier. Second, wondering about the timing of leaving your job? Think about the overall climate at your company and the marketplace in general. It isn't always just about this job, but you might also need a new one in the future. And leaving at the right time could make that switch even easier. 
But the big lesson? Don't tell Jason Anson your best spy jokes. That guy still isn't laughing. Uh, Come on. All right. Okay. How about this one, Jason? What kind of shoes do all spies wear? Sneakers. (laughs) That is gold, right? Am I right? It's gold. Okay, fine. Check this one out. What do you call an alligator in a vest? An investigator. No? Yeah, okay. How about this one? What deodorant was put undercover? Old Spice. Old Spice. You get it? Oh, my God, you're a robot. Jeez, smile once in a while. All right, here's the last one. Promise you're going to love this. What do you call it when one bull spies on another bull? A stakeout. Oh, my God, it's amazing. That is clearly the... Jeez, dude. Get some humor in it. Or just go back to your other career being the kicker for the Detroit Lions. But, man, this guy's tough, Joe. Big thanks to Jason Hansen for coming down to the basement. You'll find his book, Agent of Influence, wherever books are sold. This show was created by Joe Salcihai, produced by Richie Rutter-Reese, and engineered by the amazing Steve Stewart. Online, visit us on Twitter at at S. Benjamin's cast, or on our Facebook page. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug, and I really thought doing these credits completely naked would have been a lot more fun than it actually was. SB Podcasts may receive payment on the show from sponsors and guests in the form of books, giveaway items, discounts, or other remuneration. There's no way you would take advice from these dorks, but like Joe's mom always says, don't take advice from people you don't know. This show is for entertainment purposes only, and before making any financial moves, consult with a real financial advisor. This got sent to me by my friend, Mike, and I immediately wrote to him. I said, this is, this is after show. If you're a criminal, this is the worst thing that could ever happen to you. Here we go. Most of the time, flatulence can lead to embarrassing situations. Well, one red face situation led an alleged criminal right into the hands of Missouri police. On Facebook, Clay County, Missouri Sheriff's Department posted about police along with a canine unit searching for an alleged criminal who was wanted for alleged possession of a controlled substance. A spokesperson with the Sheriff's Department told Fox 2 St. Louis the culprit tried to hide from police, but the suspect passed gas so loud it gave away their hiding spot. Fox News reports authorities wouldn't divulge the identity of the suspect, but after an embarrassing situation like this, it might be for the best. We've got to give props to Liberty PD for using their senses to sniff him out, the department added. Sniff him out? Oh, that poor, poor dog. 
how bad is that? I found that on the USA Today news site. How bad is that? You just I don't get, even know what to say. You just got done doing the illegal thing that you did, and you fart so loud <laughs> that the cops could find you. You're hiding in the bush, and it just, you can't hold it in any longer. Generally speaking, fart jokes kind of low end of the totem pole for comedy. Yeah. But I cracked up. But that's pretty good. I cracked up what I saw. I'm like, really? Really? I think the fact that it's real, that it really happened. I like the part where he's like, an alleged criminal who allegedly was doing allegedly some <laughs> this, but he really did this other thing. <laughs> but he really passed gas. <laughs> We're not alleged. We know from the look on the dog's face that it really, <laughs> really happened. Well, Stackers, the show might be over, but the celebrations are just beginning because it is Military Appreciation Month that I want to celebrate people like my brother-in-law, Eric, who is such a giving person. Eric will do just anything for you. And as a Marine, you can see that his time in the military taught him to be a guy who gives to his community, gives to his family, and is always there when you need them. This Military Appreciation Month, Navy Federal Credit Union wants to celebrate members like Eric who go above and beyond. Navy Federal offers member-only exclusive rates, discounts, and tools to empower their members and help them reach their goals. Navy Federal's employees are part of the community they serve. Many of them are military family members, reservists, or veterans. And all branches of the military, veterans, DOD employees, and their families are eligible for Navy Federal membership. In fact, there are so many resources on the Navy Federal website, resources like Best Cities After Service to help veterans transition to civilian life and Best Careers for Military Spouses to support military families. Visit NavyFederal.org slash celebrate and you'll see all of their Military Appreciation Month offers and other Navy Federal offers. Navy Federal is insured by NCUA, Equal Housing Lender.